0: and welcome to Dr. Me First. I'm your colleague in medicine and your coach in life, Dr. Freaking Aaron Wiseman. This is a summer showcase episode. And if you don't know what it is or haven't listened to any other ones, this is where I am spotlighting a fellow member of the Doctors Podcast Network. One, it's to show you that there are other amazing physician podcasts out there, and they are becoming my friends. And two, it's giving me and my team a break over the summer because I think it's so super important that we walk our talk, that if I'm telling you to take rest and to take breaks and to make more space in your life, I got to freaking do it too. So sit back, relax, listen to this episode, and don't you worry, I am coming back 100%. After this break, there's going to be so much more air and sass, I'm not even going to know what to do with it all. All right, well, let's get into the episode, but first, let me pay some bills. As a physician, you routinely check your patient's health. But when was the last time you checked the financial health of your practice? You could be needlessly losing money right now. Stop bleeding money. Get actionable insight from your group's financial performance with a free, no-strings-attached assessment from ClearCloud, a leader in medical billing solutions, EHR, and more. CareCloud has over 20 years of experience helping large and small providers boost profitability and has helped thousands of practices optimize their financial operations. Request your free revenue cycle assessment and learn more about your group's performance by visiting drpodcastnetwork.com backslash CareCloud. That's drpodcastnetwork.com backslash C-A-R-E-C-L-O-U-D, CareCloud.
1: Dr.
2: Cook. Dr. Cook, you're wanted in the OR. Dr. Cook, you're wanted in the
1: OR. Welcome to the Prescription for Success podcast with your host, Dr. Randy Cook.
3: everyone and welcome to the prescription for success podcast. I'm Dr. Randy Cook and I'll be your host for the program. Before we get into today's interview, let me just remind everyone that our podcast is brought to you by MD Coaches, a company dedicated to developing and empowering physicians and other healthcare professionals to realize a greater potential and to achieve a greater level of satisfaction in their chosen fields. You can find MD Coaches on the web at my, my interview guest today is Dr. Niran Al-Ajba, a very busy pediatrician in Silverdale, Washington. Dr. Al-Ajba grew up dreaming of becoming a physician, and after completing medical school and residency, she joined her dad in his very well-established pediatrics practice in her old hometown. Early on, she discovered that she had a talent for writing. And eventually, she became a regular columnist for her local newspaper, where she regularly writes about a variety of topics, including medical, social, and political. She has also written a book due for release in November of 2020. So now, let's hear that interview. And it is my pleasure today to be speaking with Dr. Niran Alajba in uh, Silverdale, Washington. Niran, thank you so much for being here and welcome to Prescription for Success.
4: Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here.
3: Well, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Uh, just uh, one thing I want to, out of curiosity, before we uh, get into the discussion around. You and your and your journey to success. I'm a little curious. I know that uh, Washington was the state where we uh, identified the first case of COVID nineteen in the U S. And uh, for our listeners, we we're recording in October, so that was uh, like nine months ago. Uh, I'm just curious can you Can you give us an update on where the state of Washington is uh, and how things have been going for the last nine months?
4: Well, it's been a really long nine months, or at least it feels like it. Um, I actually had, so the nursing home, which was kind of, I would say, ground zero for a lot of the first COVID cases. Um, I think there were so many deaths so quickly for us that it was almost a wake-up call. And a number of my patients, actually two patients, had grandparents who died uh, in the Life Care Center, and so early early on, you know, we were really affected. Um, At least I felt affected because my patients were affected, and it just seemed to get real very quickly. So I would say, like the rest of the country, we quickly shut down. Um, We still uh, have a mask mandate, Uh, but as we sit here now, um, they're considering opening up schools, uh, starting with kindergarten and first graders, in another couple weeks. So, again, life has changed quite a bit, but we're starting to kind of find our way.
3: Do you um, have a feel, and and I I, I know it's hard uh, because Washington is where you've been for the last nine months, but do you have a feel for whether you think um, Washington has behaved differently than other parts of the country because they were first, or do you you just not – is it hard to tell what – what do you think?
4: Well, I think we got lucky in a way. I know that's strange to say that, Uh, but again, because the kind of ground zero, I mean, really early on, there were a number of elderly people and a number of them died. And I think that was a little bit different than New York where where the disease appeared to be spreading sort of not as obviously. And then all of a sudden, all heck broke loose and they had so many cases. So in a way, I think like I said, we got a wake-up call early, and um, to be honest with you, I've been open the entire time. I never shut down. I have been seeing people in the car right away. I went to that within a couple of days, and I've only had two tests that were positive this whole time.
3: That's a pretty good record.
4: It is. It is. And and I and maybe the kids don't test positive as often. You know, maybe they don't. Um, have the receptors But I bet nose, you would have known but, if,
3: if they had parents that were infected. I bet you would have known. Yes.
4: Probably. Oh yeah. There were a number of parents that were infected and the kids tested negative. So that's what I was going to say, that there probably are a number of cases that I've seen, but the only ones that tested positive were two asymptomatic teenagers. So we've changed our lives a little bit, but um, I think we're still, I mean, life, we're still moving forward. Um, and I sure. don't think we were as devastated as New York because of that early um cluster that's probably you know been helpful for us
3: and of course you know the population density uh -hmm. in places like new york city makes a big difference
4: correct uh, this disease has been a referendum on cities you bet yeah
3: well thank you for the update and uh now i really do want to get around to talking about you um I'm interested, as we always are, in how you got interested in medicine. Was there a, a, a physician relative or a, a physician hero? How, how, how did you get connected?
4: Well, um, yeah, relatives, yes. My grandfather was a family physician in Tacoma, which is about 45-minute drive from here, where my mom was born and raised. And then my father was a pediatric endocrinologist. And oh, so, so lots of
3: docs he, around your family. He,
4: Yes. In fact, um, apparently I told my dad when I was five after touring the hospital um, that I was quote, born to be a doctor. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, my story is about as boring as they probably come. And that physician who was a pathologist who took my first grade class on the tour is actually still around. He still sends me patients. And I was, does he I was, really? He does. I was just talking about him the other day and someone said, you know, Dr. Hallman says hello. And he is the doctor who was down in the lab um giving a tour to my class and he later told my parents you know some kids were squeamish in the back but this little girl with pigtails um with you know brown <laughs> hair she was so interested in what was going on and my parents kind of looked at each other and thought well yeah that's our that's our kid
3: <laughs> and and i'm and i'm also interested to know now you mentioned your grandfather uh was was he a first generation American? Was he an immigrant or what was my, no, status? my
4: my dad was an immigrant um, actually uh-huh. from, he was born and born and raised in Iraq and uh-huh. no, my grandfather, my mom's father was not his, in fact, his father. So we had a pharmacist uh, before that. So my great grandfather was a pharmacist in Montana. Uh-huh. And he actually ran for the state Senate. So a politician and a pharmacist and then doctors. ever since.
3: <laughs> she, she well, got it all covered. <laughs> All right, well, it uh, sounds like you made the decision pretty early and 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 never really looked back and uh in any case uh came time for college and and you moved to the midwest how'd that come about
4: well that's another interesting story i um I graduated early, so I skipped uh, kindergarten and first grade uh, I was five turning six in the second grade, so when I graduated from high school, I was sixteen. And I was the oldest of four children. I, I had three younger brothers. And uh, my parents were kind of nervous about me leaving the leaving the state. Back then, I remember having to carry a letter that gave permission for me to get medical care without my parents. I mean, remember, mm-hmm. laws have changed a lot. So mm-hmm. I think it was probably a little bit scary for them to send their daughter off out of state. Uh, I but bet I re- it was. A 16-year-old, yeah. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And uh, so I really liked the Lyman Briggs. Um, it was kind of a science honors college at Michigan State, and they had rolling admissions, which worked in my favor. And so when I finally was able to convince my parents to let me go out of state, that was one of the college programs that I really was interested in.
3: And your, your major, your undergraduate major was physiology. You were an honors graduate. Mm-hmm. And then there is this thing uh, that I spotted in your CV. You had a specialization in health humanities. Yeah. What, is, what does that mean? What you do you know, have to do to get that? It,
4: well, what I had to do is take a few um, classes in like history of medicine, ethics, um, oh, uh, let's see, healthcare systems of the world. I'm just trying to think back to those classes. Um,
3: That's a pretty good idea.
4: It is. It was a really neat. Um, I'm so pleased. I, I still think back to the different things I learned, you know, what, what utilitarianism is. How do you make ethical decisions and why, you know, end of life decisions? And, and we really got to learn, um, read stories that were going on at the time. That would have been the, the nineties and, and then talk about why we would or would not have made the same decision. Um, and so we were talking about, obviously Dr. Kevorkian was kind of big in Michigan at the time. And so, right. So those kinds of questions as a college student, um, you know, the professor would kind of lead these discussions and we would be assigned a a position, kind of like a debate team sort of approach. And they'd say, okay, you're going to argue for the right to die. You're going to argue for, you know, you, you can't, physicians shouldn't be killing patients. And I go, you know, or write your paper or have your class discussion. And so it was a really um a neat group of courses that we were able to take.
3: Sounds like a really wise thing <clears throat> for them to be doing. Uh just to give you an example, from my personal experience, of course, I applied to medical school about the time that they invented penicillin. I think it was a while back, but uh <laughs> in any case, we uh we were encouraged to do our undergraduate work in a liberal arts college uh, you know uh, uh, a heavy science curriculum, but they wanted us to be uh, exposed to the humanities and, and allegedly uh, people who had that background were more likely to to be admitted, but it sounds like Michigan state was uh, addressing that issue much more directly uh, by pointing you in an area that, uh, uh, really stood to support your decision making once you got into medical school and once you became a physician am I reading that right?
4: Yeah yeah I think it was really um, I, I don't I'm not aware of anybody else who was kind of given these opportunities to take medical ethics classes as an undergraduate so I do think it was really um, forward thinking or um, they really uh, were Kind of trailblazing, I think, and I've I've found it. I still have that ethics book somewhere at home, and um, I've talked about things like that with my kids, even, and I, I still find it useful to discuss even today.
3: But clearly, it was far different from four years in a lab with test tubes and pe- petri dishes and things of that nature. Which
4: oh, absolutely, and that is not my thing. I, I got to be honest. I and, <laughs> and I admire the people who, for them, it is their thing. Um, I think I. You know the same decision I made at five kind of carried through. I was interested in genetics initially, and of course back then, when I was really little, my dad said, um, "Well, you know, pathology is the field that deals with genetics." And of course, obviously now we have genetics dealing with genetics. Um, But as I as I grew up and kind of um, you know babysat or just did other things in my life, I really found I loved children and working with children. And so I was never your kind of test tube, microscope kind of girl. It's just not my thing. I really like people. I like interacting with people. And and I do like some of that ethical decision-making.
2: Hmm. I mean, I,
4: I face it in a small town all the time. I mean, I have... People who ask me about their neighbors, who I saw yesterday and had to admit to the hospital. So I mean, these things come up for me on a daily basis, and I've always tried to look at things from that lens. What What I remember the most about that class was simply, she said, "These questions don't necessarily have right answers. You can say you're a certain religion or you have a belief system, and therefore, um, there's a right answer. But a lot of these ethical dilemmas don't really have a right answer." it's a matter of perspective and it's a matter of trying to understand both perspectives. And so, yeah. you know, I, to me, that's been extremely valuable um, in what I do every day.
3: Yeah. That's a good stage of your life to learn that lesson for sure. It really is. Well, it sounds like uh, undergraduate school was not much of a challenge for you. You graduated with honors and then uh, back to Washington for medical school. How did you make that choice?
4: Well, uh, that's a great story. That's the only place I got in and I was the last person to get into my class. Um, I was notified. So I was put on the wait list. And back then there was this great Dean of Admissions, uh, Dr. Werner Sampson is his name. And he was famous for kind of hammering at the students when we would go and meet with him to find out why we didn't get in. So I remember I called, um, and they said, well, you, you know, you're on the what's called the unranked wait list. And so they had 20 that were ranked. And then they had this pile of 20 kind of just in case. And so they said, you know, Dr. Sampson meets with students. Do you want to make an appointment? I said, okay. I mean, I didn't really even know what I was doing. So I said, all right. So that summer, um, this would have been the summer of 95, uh, I was working actually at the health district as a health educator. I hadn't gotten into medical school. And I went to meet with him and he sort of looked at me and said, well, just try again next year. You don't really have anything that stands out. Uh, he also told me that he didn't know how my dad could be successful as a pediatric endocrinologist in a small town. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, he's so great. He just he's he's a straight shooter. I got to know him very well, obviously after through the years. And um, so I left, and I thought, you know, I had done this sport in growing up, baton twirling, and I and I had been on a national and even world level. There's still tapes that keep showing up on YouTube here and there. I never, I don't have copies of these things, but people will post them because they have old videotapes and such.
2: Mm, and to Google it.
4: yeah, you might want to Google it. And, uh, <laughs> so I, I was irritated with this guy. I thought, you know, he really didn't know anything about me. And I mentioned the baton twirling and he said, well, it's not like playing basketball or the violin. So, <laughs> oh, so true, true to my form, which is kind of the theme of my life. I, um, wrote him a letter about kind of what I thought of him. I, I, it was a nice letter. He says, I called him stupid. I definitely did not call him stupid, but, um, I said, you know, you don't know anything about this sport. Here's a videotape. This is back then when we had VHS tapes. I said, here's the tape of my last world competition. I'm sure you will find it equally as challenging as basketball or the violin. So I get a call about, and I, kind of told my dad I had done this. And he said, Oh my gosh, go, go to the post office, go get that letter. You, you, you you, you can't do that. You can't send it. And I I thought, you know what? I'm a person. He's a person. I'm going to tell him kind of what I thought. And I, I started it with, you know, I was disappointed with our meeting and here's something, here's a chance to learn something. And so I got a call about a month later and I got in. And when I called to accept the position, so I called, I was so excited. And um, the lady on the phone said, oh, you're the baton twirler. Oh my gosh, everybody's seen your <laughs> tape. We love it. It's amazing. And I said, oh, oh wow. And she goes, I said, did Dr. Sampson see it? She said, oh, he definitely saw it. <laughs> he gave it back to me when I graduated. Um, and he told me, obviously he used to tease me that I'll always take a baton twirler from now on. Um, but I think he kind of liked that sort of approach where I said, hey, wait a second, buddy. I don't think you gave me a chance. And here's something I think I can teach you.
3: Obviously, he was impressed.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And he I have me on- to
3: admit, uh, I talked to a lot of physicians on this program, and you're the very first one that ever uh, muscled their way into medical school uh, on the basis of twirling. I'm, yeah. I'm very impressed. Well,
4: thank you. He uh, he did I, put he did put me on the admissions committee, just so you know. And we had a great relationship. He was at my wedding, as a matter of fact. He, he's just a great mentor.
3: That's an even better part of the story. <laughs> you know, I, I if you don't mind, I want to follow this just a little bit because I'm a sure. little bit surprised. You know, you, you're you're uh, an honors graduate uh, from a prestigious university, and yet you're not ex- you're, you're not uh, accepted. Uh, on the first round consideration in any medical school? Well, let me ask you this. Were there multiple schools where you applied?
4: Um, there were a couple of other schools. I want to say I applied to about seven or eight at the time. Um, and I got, I got an interview, I think, at Wayne State University, and I was also on the wait list there. Um, but at that time, for example, Michigan State wouldn't look at you if you weren't a state resident. So, you know, there were a few rules like that that kind of, you know, precluded me, I think, from getting much further
3: and and i suppose uh that that it may have become much more competitive uh for women uh as opposed to the days when i applied which as i say it was a very long time ago but i but i know that uh historically female applicants uh have much better scholastic backgrounds so maybe it's harder for them to uh distinguish between Uh, who's a good risk and who's not because all of the grades were so good.
4: Right. Although I wasn't. So they
3: have to look at who is a twirler, right?
4: Well, potentially, I think what's interesting (laughs) is I wasn't that great of a student. I mean, I with honors was above um, a three. I can't remember if it was a three, six or three, five. But, you know, I was at like a three, seven. I think when I graduated, I didn't have the 4.0 grades. Um, I had good. I had good solid MCAT scores. Um, I remember that part. Um, and I think I was young, you know, I was 19 years old when I applied to med school. And I, I think I, I will say this, I'm not the young, even now when I'm still on the admissions committee and interview, I think it's hard for a 19 year old, um, in an interview, to compare to, let's say, a 25- or 26-year-old in life experience maturity. And the last thing a school wants to do is take someone who, quote, isn't completely sure, who, who's, who they're not sure has really lived or had enough experience yeah. to know what they want to do.
3: That's a good point.
4: Yeah, good I think point. that played into it.
3: So what was medical school like for you, about like what you expected, harder, not harder?
4: Um, it, it, like? it really it really was about what I expected I mean I think it was it was a really busy time I um, obviously moved to Seattle within a week of getting my acceptance and so um, it was a little bit of a whirlwind to start off with uh, but you know I, it was like anybody else's experience there were great students I had my 21st birthday right after our final exams uh, my whole class went out with me for the most part um, and it so it was it was just an extension kind of of college as far as you know it was hard work we went to class we were in cadaver lab um, and we did as much learning as we could you know it's like trying to get a drink of water out of a fire hose
3: well said and you actually made reference uh, a few minutes ago about your decision to go into pediatrics Do, were, were you were you fairly sure uh, when you started medical school that it was going to be peds, or did you give it some time to consider other things or not?
4: I so both really. I I started out uh, thinking I was going to do pediatrics, and then I kind of my clinical years. While I would say my my um, non-clinical years were just I didn't love them, but you know put in put in the work and the time. I loved the cl- I you know I loved the clinical years. That was really. I loved everything I did, whether it was internal medicine, whether it was um, family practice, OB, surgery, I really enjoyed almost everything I did. And so I did struggle a little bit with, do I do internal medicine? Do I do uh, peds? Do I do family to kind of cover it all? And so so I did really try to search and figure out what I liked the best. Um, and really, when push came to shove, it was it was really children that I enjoyed. You know, I um, that summer after my first year of med school, uh, there was this chance to go and run a summer camp for foster kids, some of the worst foster kids in Seattle that had, had the really painful backgrounds. And it was in this tiny little area called Home, Washington, which is um, kind of between Bremerton, it's on the peninsula, kind of between Bremerton and, and Tacoma, on the Olympic Peninsula. And I'll never forget, it was this Catholic... Um, organization that put it on. So they, they wanted some uh, boy med student and a girl to come out, spend time with these kids, do some health education. And what probably really uh, cemented it for me was <laughs> I had these kids that were tough. I mean, these big, strong kids. And I remember they wanted to do this like um, icebreaker where kids were playing, you know, old school games. And these kids were not listening. They didn't care what the counselors said. I mean, it was it was chaos. And I remember with the boys especially, I started kind of, if they didn't listen, they had to do 10 pushups. And no, no ifs, ands, or buts. They had to do them. Wow. Get down, do it. And so what's funny is as the week progressed, I really bonded with these kids. I, I just had such a great time. And at one point, they took us out on this expedition. They divided the girls and the boys. Um, we camped outside, no tents. It was really bare essentials. And one day into it, the counselors from the boys camp came and got me and said, yeah, we, we can't do this. <laughs> we, <laughs> oh we, yeah, it was great. They're like, we can't control these boys. They're, they're dumping bug juice on each other. They're like not doing anything they're supposed to do. We, we, we need you to leave the girls camp. And of course, for me, I would, the girls camp was like, no problem. We were making meals and everybody was functional. <laughs> and so they made me go over to this and they were on this like kind of isolated island uh, there was a bathroom because I was like, I'm not going if there's no bathroom. <laughs> and <laughs> and so I spent the next two days camping with all these kids. And I just, I was smaller than they were. These were these teenage boys, you know, 17, 18, they're six feet tall, I'm five feet and a half an inch. But um, I just had a great time. And I remember at the end, the counselors are like, way in the barracks, packing stuff up, saying, thank God, this is over. And I was standing at the bus, hugging every single kid. I was sort of crying as they're getting on the bus, saying goodbye to them. And I remember thinking, you know what? I think I probably got to do this. Like, this is probably what I'm good at.
3: Sounds like it was the right thing to do.
4: It was. I love what I do. I I love it today the same way. I still think of kids Well, I guess that was
3: going to be my next question. Looking back, it sounds like there are no regrets.
4: Oh, absolutely not. I wouldn't change a thing. Not at all. And,
3: and. Right away, uh, uh, as soon as you had your MD, you made yourself available as a clinical instructor at the medical school where you just graduated, right?
4: Well, sort of. I went away to residency. I, um, I matched in Denver, Colorado, at the University of Colorado, and it's mixed with Denver Children's uh, Hospital. Yes, I
3: did leave that out, didn't I? <laughs>
4: Well, uh, it's, it's such a, it's such a pivotal time in my life. I probably will never forget it, but, um, so I spent three years there doing the pediatric training, obviously before I, um, came back and yeah, I actually, Dr. Sampson was still sitting on the admissions committee. He was still the Dean of admissions. So when I came back, I said, I'd like to rejoin the admissions committee as a faculty member. And so he said, yeah, you need to apply and get on as, get on as a clinical instructor and then no problem. And so that's how that kind of came about later when I came home to practice.
3: And 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 just to make sure that we've covered all the events, I, I I'm gonna gather that in as much as you were fairly confident of uh what your specialty was gonna be, despite uh the workload that all residents uh have to deal with, were you relatively Happy and satisfied during those residency years, or was it a matter of gee, I can't wait for this to be over, or what was it like?
4: Oh, I had a countdown. In fact, the attendings, I remember one attending in the ICU, I had to do two months of ICU back to back, and my first night of call in the ICU, I did eight femoral lines and I coded three kids. And then the next morning I remember I was teaching my pulmonary fellow. I was like, oh, I've done so many femoral lines tonight. Why don't I just talk you through a femoral line? Because she said, I didn't get that many in residency. So, and I was letting like my fellow residents, like, oh, you didn't get one? Come on over here, you could do this next one. I'm done doing femoral lines. And so I had kind of bad luck. Um, and so somewhere in the middle of those sixty days in the ICU, I had at one point I think twenty-one days with no break. Uh, I did start to struggle a little bit. And I remember one of the attendings said something to me, and I said, "Well, in fifteen months, you know, two weeks and three days, the decision will be mine, and I'm looking very forward to that." <laughs> so, I, you know, I had a countdown. But to to the program's credit, they trained us really well. I mean. And this Sounds was the old, like, yeah. This was the old days where we didn't have those. Um, I think they have hour limits now. We had no right. limits. We did call, which really wasn't terrible. Every four for most of residency. I think when we were doing oncology, it was every three. Um, and and we were busy. I mean, there are nights I was in charge of seventy patients. There was always somebody who was coding. And, um, it it was busy, but it really taught us to be comfortable in almost any setting. And that has been really important, um, coming out in a small area. And, um, and even as one of my electives, I did a month with a flight team. So life, there's life flight one and two in Colorado. And so I was working with the helicopter team and I got to do like pericardios and TCs. I got to do a lot of things, um, that I'm not sure everybody gets to do today, yeah. Uh, you know, on people's lawns we, and it was adults. It wasn't just children. Mm-hmm. So obviously working with life flight one, it's in the mountains and back to Denver. So we were, we would go and pick up ski injuries. I remember one of my first calls was landing on someone's lawn and he had died outside, had a heart attack outside. Um, and so there was a lot of, um, experience, hands-on experience that I think has been really important, um, as I've come yeah. out of practice.
3: That's gotta be,
1: uh, truly invaluable.
4: It it really is.
1: Remember medical school? You were confident, studious, hardworking, and you learned what to expect in all manner of patient care. Then reality struck. Regulations, expenses, staff management, and administration. Is this what we signed up for? Stress on the verge of burnout? No time for family or the reason we got into medicine? Helping people. What are the options when you're afraid you're in the wrong career? Transition? Teach? Quit? What if there was another way? MD Coaches can help. We're a team of medical professionals with a century of experience in the clinical and business sides of medicine. More importantly, MD Coaches has been where you are. Stressed and trying to navigate a world school didn't prepare us for. MD Coaches is your mentor, your confidant, to help you make your practice shine, navigate administrations, and successfully lead staff and projects. Or if you're ready to transition, we can help there too. MD Coaches is doctors helping doctors. Visit our website to receive a free, no-obligation consultation. Go to mymdcoaches.com forward slash rx. That's mymdcoaches.com forward slash rx. Isn't it time someone else was on your side? Don't let the business of being a doctor stop you from doing what you love. That site again, mymdcoaches.com forward slash rx. Visit us today.
3: Physician Outlook is a new magazine platform built for physicians and by physicians, and it's designed to showcase unique physician talents. Sometimes it might be clinical talents, but mostly it's about the intersection between clinical and non-clinical talents, whether it be writing or painting or cooking or maybe even making a political statement in front of a state and local governing body, or even at the nation's capital, and dozens of other things. It's available online and in print. It's visually stunning on all of its platforms. I promise it's really unique in terms of Physician Lifestyle magazines. I think you'll really enjoy it. We think it's just the thing to fill your prescription for success. And like the Prescription for Success podcast, Physician Outlook magazine amplifies the voice of any doctor who has something to say and also uniquely engages patients who still believe in physician led team-based care and prescription for success. Listeners can get $20 off an annual subscription fee by visiting rx4successpodcast.com forward slash physician outlook. But now, so uh, uh, upon completion of your residency and, uh, you're back in Washington. Uh, this uh, instructorship that you had at the medical school was that your only job, or did you have a private practice elsewhere? Wh- what oh, was the situation I joined.
4: I I joined my dad. Um, in fact, ah, I okay. I came here to make sure it was what I wanted to do. Uh, in yeah. the fall of two thousand one, and um, I knew again. I knew that's kind of what I wanted to do, and so I joined him. And it's crazy. I still remember the moment I drove back home into my hometown, done with my training, ready to do this, and I got this kind of sinking feeling in my stomach. And I thought, well, there's no turning back now. I I had said no to fellowships. I had. um, I just wanted to get out of um, the academic center. Um, And I mean, I liked all my colleagues. I liked all the attendings. I just, I'm not. I guess I'm not much for uh, all of that formal. Medical. Bureaucracy. Yeah, bureaucracy is probably the best word for it. I, I'm kind of a on my own kind of girl. So um, mm-hmm. anyway, I remember when I drove into town and thought, well, uh, this is it's time to to sink or swim. And um, I think you know we've made I've made it. And then to stay attached to the UW, you know, I teach advanced life support classes at at Children's Hospital, and then I've worked on the admissions mm-hmm. committee ever since.
3: And are, are uh, is your dad still in practice?
4: No, he passed away three years ago. In fact, it's the anniversary is mm-hmm. tomorrow. He died October twenty first, two thousand seventeen, and he saw seventeen patients on his last day. Six six weeks before that, so he was wow. working. Yeah, he was still working, and I I had to take over. Um, you know, we obviously were together for sixteen years, mm-hmm. and uh, so I had to take over. He had a full. Schedule of patients for the next two months after he had his heart attack and was in the hospital. And so I had to take over all of those patients. And I was I was routinely behind. I was running three hours behind. People were coming in. You know, my dad had been here since 1971 in practice. So we're on third generation, and even now I have one fourth generation patient. Um, so grandparents were coming in, they were crying, they were asking what's going on with my dad. I, (laughs) this place was really, it was, it was insane. People were, and patients were amazing. This is where I learned how special it is to be part of a a small town like this. People were bringing me dinners. Uh, they were bringing the staff dinners, uh, patients arranged every day for a couple of weeks, a different patient would show up with a dinner, with a lunch for the staff because we weren't getting to get a break. Wow. And they were landscaping the grounds, helping me with funeral music. I mean, people just really came together to help. And uh, That's
3: really special.
4: It really was. It was.
3: Uh, You know, I I can't imagine trying to juggle that in in the midst of dealing with your grief. Uh, It must have been uh, uh, truly trying. And uh, uh, the fact that you had people that were right there ready to rally around you and – keep you upright. Uh, uh, you were fortunate indeed, I think.
4: Yeah, I, I feel fortunate. Um, I also had yeah, a little bit do. of, yeah, I had a little bit of training. I We lost my brother suddenly in 2007. He fell off the roof of a building in Seattle. He was 26. And, um, yep. and it was in the newspaper and one of the other pediatricians that had retired called and said, you know, can I work for you guys while you take some time off? And so, obviously, our family was devastated, and I got married, believe it or not, a month after that happened. Um, it was a rough year in two thousand seven, but I had yeah, already so I had already kind of i don't know i, w- I don 't want to say learned to grieve, but that was completely unexpected. you know he was younger than I was, I expected him to be with me for my lifetime. Uh, mm. My brothers and I were close, so that was that was really where I learned I mean, I broke down in front of patients that was a really hard time for me. And at least with my dad, he was 81, um, you know, it, it at least was, I would call it more a natural order of things. And sure. um, I would say I was more able to comfort other people who were grieving and didn't know how to talk to their children about his death. Um, you know, I had already kind of dealt, I think I was a little more experienced at dealing with grief, knowing that this is part of the way it works. We don't, we don't get right. to decide, you know, when, when. When our time is or when we're going to die. And it was fascinating though, because in a way, if you think about it, how many children lose somebody close to them who's not a grandparent, right? Or Mm -hmm. a a parent. And so many patients came in and they're looking at me for guidance, like, well, what do I tell my six year old? She wants to see Dr. Saad. And I looked at her and I said, you tell her he's dying. And you tell her to make him a card and you tell her to put glitter on it and say that she you know, loves him and hopes he gets better or, or whatever it is that she wants to say to him, you tell her she needs to say goodbye. And I knew early on, I remember the first day I went in there and oh, he coded and had a heart, he had a, a balloon pump and he had so many lines and drains. And I remember looking at this going, you know what, this is not going to, this isn't going to end well. And i Somehow I had that feeling and I'm so glad early on the patients were willing and comfortable coming and saying, what do we say to our children? And I mean, I took hundreds of cards over there to the hospital and 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 kids did so well afterwards. Uh, and my own children, same thing. I told them early on, you know, we need to say goodbye every time we see Papa because we just don't know what's going to happen. And I mm. I learned a lot. I learned that children can teach us how to grieve. And, uh, so many of them did, and, and they still will talk about him once in a while. I, I have a a child, um, he's a man now actually. And he was in in today or this week, actually, as a matter of fact, and he, he always calls me the replacement. (laughs) 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 He always calls me the replacement, Dr. Olajva. And he's a really, you know, neat kid. And he still talks about my dad and how much he misses him. And it's been really an interesting experience to be part of, people's lives in a way that I don't think the rest of the country necessarily experiences all the time. You know, this, this would be like medicine learned by apprenticeship where the doctor's child takes over the practice and keeps going as the doctor for the town. And so many of these grandparents remember when I was born and they remember hearing about me growing up and they remember hearing I was going to come and work with him. And um, they were telling me stories about how they met him and why they chose him to be their pediatrician. I mean, th- there's almost nothing better than that kind of um, bond between patient and doctor.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And I want to follow up on that just a little bit more, if if, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, you know, I'm trying to visualize what it must have been like for you to uh, fill in the enormous gap that obviously existed in your practice at that time, and, and yet, uh, be in a position of having to deal with your own grief? Do you, and you're kind of making it sound like uh, you processed your grief relatively well, but I want to make sure I didn't get that wrong. What, do, am I correct about that or?
4: You are. What else I, can you tell me? Well, I can tell you that um, something Something wasn't right about my dad. We, we kind of got into a little bit of an argument. We rarely argued, but we got into a little bit of an argument, um, I want to say, about two or three weeks before he had his fatal heart attack or his heart attack that landed him in the hospital. Um, and I, he, something wasn't right. I can just tell you, I've worked with him for 16 years and I just knew something was off. And I, and I remember looking at him and saying, something's wrong with you. And he goes, no, 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 it's all you. <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I said, no, I know something's wrong with you. And now you know that I know. And, uh, and what's interesting is I came back a week later and I just said, look, I'm sorry I upset you. Uh, I, I don't want whatever time you have left to kind of affect our relationship and I love you. And he sort of said, okay, well, I don't really know what to say. And, and so I remember feeling kind of, um, gosh, hurt a little bit. And I remember sort of honestly crying on the way home and thinking, okay, some, I, I had this, I just had this feeling. I don't, I don't know how else to explain it. And then, like, probably a week later after we had that conversation uh, is when he ended up having his heart attack. And so somehow I knew. And so I think the grief began before he actually got sick. And I just, I, one of my good friends, when I told her what, what had happened with our discussion, she's actually a counselor. She doesn't work as a counselor, but she was for the school district before she um, changed jobs. And she said, you know, I think it sounds to me like you don't have the same dad that you've had for 42 years. And it sounds like maybe he's slipping away is what she said. And I remember thinking, yeah, you know, that's how it feels right now. And so to be honest, I did grieve. Um, You know, you always do when it's a parent, Uh, but somehow I knew. And so the grief for me started before everyone else's grief. And somehow when I walked into that hospital room, I remember getting the call that morning and um, my mom said, here's Dr. So-and-so on the phone. And he tells me what happened. And I thought, oh boy, this is not... This is again. I just had that feeling, like I don't think he's going to be back to this office, and so yeah. the grief—the grief for me began earlier. And he was in the hospital for five weeks, and that's when I think everyone else was really grieving. So for whatever reason, it kind of worked in a way that I could help other people grieve. I could help my own children grieve, and I could still kind of manage to keep us afloat. Uh, I'd never done the payroll taxes before. I had done the paychecks once or twice because yeah. we still do them manually, but. I really didn't know much about business ownership and obviously I needed to concentrate. I, there was a lot I needed to learn in that, you know, two month period.
3: And
4: and so I think I was able to do it because I was, I had started grieving before it happened.
3: Well, thank you for sharing that with us. That that really is a powerful story. Um, And uh, I just want to move on to uh, a few other things that sort of fascinated me about what has happened during your years in, Practice. One of the things that you uh, chose to do, apparently chose to do, was to become the lead physician for the County Juvenile, uh, juvenile Detention Center. Yeah.
4: <laughs> I want to yes. know some
3: more about that.
4: Well, um, so public health has always been kind of an interest of mine. Obviously after college, I worked for the public health district, um, before I was even into medical school. And then my research in medical school was, uh, working with the health district, doing home visits, um, with the purpose of preventing child abuse. So I've always maintained really close ties with the health district. Uh, we're now actually, I'm, I've been here now for the fourth health. We just had a new health officer, um, who's been uh, established in the middle of COVID. Um, But I've worked with the health officers basically for the last 25 years in this county. And so when one of them was going to retire, his name was Scott Lindquist. He actually works in epidemiology for the state. He's a pediatric infectious disease doctor. And he said, you know, it's outside of our public health scope, but I want somebody who cares about Children, you know, cares about taking care of children once they're in juvenile hall. And the way Washington state rules work is they lose their insurance uh, when they either go into juvenile hall or somehow, I'm sure they don't lose their private insurance, but if they were on state insurance, um, the state department of health or whatever doesn't cover their health care, then it becomes the responsibility of, of the juvenile hall entity. And so he said, I, "I want to make sure these kids have good care." And he said, "We'll just kind of pay you on a contract basis. You don't have to go over super often, uh, but I'd like you to kind of take this over." And so again, I like kids. Uh, I do. I think I do pretty well with them. And so I, I did it for for a while until um, they decided at one point uh, to turn it over to the same healthcare providers for the for the uh, state jail or the or the um, the adults. You know, the adult correctional facilities
3: yeah I, I can understand how that might have been a problem because those uh know they do it in washington but but most states contract those things out to a bigger company that does uh, what they call correctional facility medicine and um, uh, it gets very detached and and bureaucratic So,
4: you you know, though it was, there were some neat experiences and I will, I will tell you one that was one of my favorites. I had been working with this kid kind of over the phone. The nurse that was at juvenile hall was calling me with this case and I never asked his name. And so, and he'd had like a broken arm and we weren't sure about what the plan was and we couldn't get a hold of anyone in ortho. So we were transferring this kid. Um, They had their initial care somewhere else. Then they were You know, put in juvenile hall here. And so I get to the jail or I get to the juvenile hall and I see this child's name and I said, wait a second, I know him. And she said, yeah, Uh, I told him that Dr. Olajbo was going to be coming to see him and he got very excited. And I said, I think it's been about 10 years since I've seen him. And and the details are kind of fuzzy, but his mom at one point either moved or wanted to change doctors or something. And so uh, I remember when I sent the, uh, when the guard went to go get this. Boy, I looked at the garden. I said, "I don't care what he's done. I'm going to hug him when I see him." And I'll never forget. Wow. There was no longer this seven year old boy. You know, of course, that's what I remembered. He was now 17 years right. old, and he was like six three. And this big, strapping, tall man comes through the door, and I said, "You know, let's just call him Johnny." You know, I just said, "Oh my gosh, Johnny, you're a man. You're grown up." And he goes, "Doctor Lajba, <laughs> you know, you're so tiny now." <laughs> <laughs> And I gave That's him a big funny. hug. Yeah, I gave him a big hug. And then, you know, I went to take care of whatever I needed to take care of. Um, but I remember in a way being so sad because uh, to me, he was this seven-year-old boy with all this promise. Of course. And, yeah. you know, whatever he'd done, I, I, I'll avoid the details. But, you know, he broke the law is what I will say. And yeah. he'd, really, he'd really had a hard time of it. You know, his, there was a lot of chaos in his life. And it, it doesn't sound like anyone had stood up for him as often is the case sometimes in these situations. And I just remember mm-hmm. thinking when I left, um, how sad I was, uh, that I couldn't change the outcome for this one kid.
3: Yeah. Those, uh, I, I, I bet, I bet there are, uh, quite a few painful stories there because, uh, you know, let's face it. Uh, if a child, uh, winds up in jail, you know, that, uh, There's something much bigger wrong someplace else, right?
4: Yeah. No, absolutely. That's true. Um, It's just, it's hard to let go of sometimes.
3: I bet. Well, one other area that I want to talk about, uh, which uh, uh, actually I'm kind of most fascinated with, uh, apparently uh, about three years ago, you became a fairly prolific writer (laughs) for the newspaper. Yeah. You Uh want to take it from there?
4: Uh
2: huh.
4: Sure. Um, interestingly enough, uh, I started writing for sort of Kevin MD and a couple of other websites, the healthcare blog. Um, and, uh, I I don't tend to shy away from kind of tough topics, and obviously, one of our local hospitals was consolidating and becoming more monopolized. And I'm a private practice, and I've, you know, maintained a fiercely independent private practice. I'm still on paper. I still have the same dictation. Uh, I use a dictaphone, just like in the old days. The same dictation. I'm so proud of you, lady. You're a hero. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I I really kind of refuse to change until there's a better system and to me the dictation system works so well and it's so efficient. I'm not going to change until somebody either forces me to or I'm going to try to keep finding workarounds. Um my the dictation person who who does the dictations has been working for this office since 1975. Wow. So, um you know, I mean really it's it's still a wonderful way to to function and to work, and so obviously this whole community was monopolizing, and everyone they're buying up all the physician practices, and so I I ended up uh, writing or submitting to the newspaper my first piece, which was on the 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 fact that prices go up when you end up monopolizing the care in an area. And I think I wrote one or two over the summer. And then when my dad got sick, I mean, believe it or not, it's the same time. When my dad got sick, I ended up writing this article about, there was a a guy in, I think, Florida who was defending some, his staff at an urgent care. and, And there's a video someone recorded where he's saying, you know, get out. You're a, you know, go, you're creating problems, get out. I want my staff to be safe. And everybody sort of was hammering the doctor and i ended up writing about wait a second you know we we are human beings we grieve we have losses we make mistakes we are not perfect and all we have to give we're trying to give to our patients and so i sort of wrote this post about you know, I know, or I was basically saying we need to be given grace. And I said, I know because my patients have given me more grace than any doctor deserves. And I wrote about everything that had happened, you know, patients bringing me food, patients watching my kids, patients bearing with me when I'm four hours behind in my office, because, you know, there were patients scheduled for my dad and for me, and we didn't, I didn't know what to do. And, um, basically a kind of a thank you to the community for bearing with me and saying, you know, you never know what's going on in your doctor's life. Maybe it's good to give them some grace sometimes too. And it was the number one column of the year actually in the newspaper. I'm glad to hear that. And yeah, so that's how I got hired. So at the time the editor called and he said, you know, your columns were popular, but he said this one even beat the news articles. So he said, I think it'd be silly for me not to hire you. And so I've kind of been writing a column every other week ever since. And How do you find like, that time to do that? Of well, you know, sometimes it's so interesting. Sometimes I just get frustrated and I knock it out. It's almost like a, a diary in a way um, of, my life of practice of my experiences in practice for my patients. Um, what started out as medicine, like venting about different insurances and things that would happen has become really interesting as the community has tolerated me veering off into really tough subjects like racism, um, you know, elections, um, abortion, I mean, you name it, I've written about it.
3: Well, I'm glad uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I I've read several uh, of your columns and I am very, Impressed. I mean, you—you you are not the uh, the average doctor that's uh, uh, putting articles in the paper about uh, you, you know what to do with your child's skinned knee. I uh,
4: know <laughs> that'd be so you, boring. You are, you are giving <laughs> uh,
3: uh, really uh, forceful opinions uh, on potentially uh, explosive subjects, and you don't shy away from it at all and um you you you've continued to do it over a period of time so uh, you know I, I was about to ask you uh have you got any have you gotten any substantial pushback from that and uh clearly if you have it hasn't slowed you down so what what has the experience been like
4: well it's been it's been really interesting because um you know practicing in a small town obviously I feel like a lot of the time I, I know everybody, or at least they know me. And so there's a little bit of a either spotlight or you're put under a microscope to a certain extent. And and the way I've tried to deal with that microscope is just be as transparent as possible. And so I, I sort of write like I talk. I just sort of lay out what I think. I either use data to back it up, um, obviously leaving room for, I get that you may not agree with me, uh, but this is how I see it. And I have gotten pushback. You know, there was a, a shooting of a, a Native American man or indigenous man uh, about a year ago. And I wrote a post. It, they were going after this one police officer. And I, and I remember thinking, you know, this is a bigger problem than we're acknowledging. This isn't about one police officer and one man. This is about a nation that doesn't necessarily value people of color the same way that we do whites and it's a nation that should probably be talking about it. So I, so I attempted what I would call a very clumsy post trying to express this sentiment, not saying that I have the answers because of course I don't have the answers and, um, it didn't, the impact. Okay. So there's intent and then there's impact. And really I've learned, I've learned impact matters. And sometimes we don't know our impact and, and that's obviously where we can learn. And one of my, um, uh, indigenous families the the mom called me and said look this was a disaster you hurt me you hurt my community you did a terrible job expressing what you were trying to say hmm. and she goes i'm really offended and i thought and i and i remember thinking i'm so sorry like i genuinely was about i was so i just felt so bad because that was in no way obviously yeah, my you're intention, trying to be on her side but it, right? but it trying to be, I was trying to be on her side. I did a terrible job of it and acknowledging it's really hard to acknowledge, especially if you start with good intent, it's hard to acknowledge a, a less than good impact, but it's important. It's really important. And so at the end of that conversation, she said, I think you need to do another column. And I said, Oh Lord, I'm so scared. <laughs> I, I did such a bad job. Like, I, I don't think I can do this. And she said, I'll help you. And I said, Okay. And so her and I, I kept sending her drafts, sending her drafts. She's like, "Nope, this isn't good. Nope, this doesn't sound right." And and she's uh, she's so phenomenal. I mean, really, to spend time with your doctor teaching them something I should already know. I mean, that's that's investment in a relationship. And so I remember when I turned in that post about about six months later, I wrote what I call an "I'm sorry" post, which said, "Look." I acknowledge my impact was not good. This is what I was trying to say. And this is what I'm going to do in the future to be better at writing columns. And I talked about, you know, when I'm doing this in front of an entire community that knows me, I'm, a, I'm consenting to learn. I'm basically consenting to fall down on my face, pick myself back up and learn to be better in front of all of you. And I hope you'll give me the opportunity to keep doing that. And what's interesting is when I turned it into the paper, <laughs> the editor called me, he goes, Listen, you can't be apologizing for for a million columns and I said no, this is something actually I feel strongly I should apologize for because I really didn't feel right when I saw what the impact was of the previous column because people were still writing about that column like six months later. So I could see it was hurting people and I needed to I needed to correct my mistake. And what's amazing is what came out of that was I think obviously more readership, which wasn't the intention, but that is what happened. And what also came out of it is an, an acknowledgement that we all make mistakes. And then I got better. I think I'm better at writing about racism, Supreme Court justices, uh, you know, passing away and how that affects us. The things that I I think most doctors, like you said, wouldn't write about. Um, and, And I've learned to take the negative feedback with the positive and try to learn from the negative feedback. Um, what's great is I offend Democrats and Republicans. So I'm feeling really good about that. Um, it's not that I just offend one party or the other. I'm always, I've always been kind of an independent person. So if I'm making all sides of the aisle think, I feel like I'm doing, I'm doing what I want to do in the world.
3: Well, that certainly is something um, that I think makes you truly unique. Uh, and, yeah. and, and, and seriously, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be, uh, obsequious uh the th- that's a real point that people sh- should make uh i i i i don't think I can name um, a uh columnist or a commentator or anybody in t v news radio news uh the blogs or whatever that actually takes that stance you know uh wh- what we see is that people decide they're going to accept a label uh, and they're going to defend that particular point of view, regardless of what comes down the pike. It's almost as though they feel an obligation to defend the tribe, if you will. But now comes along uh, uh, a pediatrician who says, this is what I think. Uh, let me know what you think, and maybe I'll change my mind. And you actually did that, didn't you?
4: Well, I did. I wouldn't say I changed my mind on my thoughts that the justice yeah, system I needs it. to have, you know, change. But I certainly changed my thoughts on how I expressed myself when I'm talking about controversial subjects. And I learned a great deal. And what's interesting is even that patient later said she was scared. I'll just say blankless. You can yeah. fill in whatever word you want. You know, she was really scared to call her doctor and tell her that she did a terrible job. And and I remember talking with her later and saying, I'm so glad you took that chance, though. I'm so glad you did because I'm better for it and I hope you're better for it. And to me, that's what this is all about. You know, you talk about the tribe. I I could never be considered a tribe my political party or my, because I feel like all of that is transient. I understand the president's the president, our, our legislators are our legislators, but none of that is forever. But you know what? My patients are my tribe. My family is my tribe. And those people are more important to me than any right answer politically or wrong answer politically. And, and that's what's been amazing about doing what I do is that my tribe are my amazing patients that I've had for now what, 30, 40 years they've been coming to the same practice. Actually, it's going to be 50 years this January. Um, They've been coming to the same practice for 50 years. That's outlasted any politician and any president and any, maybe not the constitution, let's say, (laughs) that still beats us. Um, But you know, again, there's these universal truths about human beings, um, that kindness goes a long way. Empathy is always important. Listening to your patients, valuing who they are, even if you don't always agree with them. Uh, I like to say that none of my patients listen to me. They don't give a darn heck what I say. They're going to do what they're going to do anyway. Um, and the thing is, I still love that about them. They will tell me when they come back, like, nah, I didn't fill those antibiotics. I, I thought you were wrong. I don't-, I don't think I needed those. And I'll say, okay, well, your kid's better, so I guess you were right. <laughs> and so it's a willingness to say, hey, I'm human too, and I don't know everything, but I think together we can find the answer.
3: Well, what a refreshing outlook that is, and uh, I uh, i don't even know how to tell you how impressed I am at your approach, and um, uh, quite frankly, I wish we had more people like you. It's been a lot of fun talking to you, asking you questions, picking your brain, uh, but uh, we're at the point, uh, Naran, where uh, I'm going to turn the program over to you and sit quietly and if you would be so kind, as to give us your personal prescriptions for success.
4: Okay. Well, uh, basically, uh, you've probably heard some of them already throughout the program, but my personal uh, prescriptions for success are basically, be exactly who you are. Don't try to change for other people. Um, Women especially get labeled as aggressive or too bossy or too domineering. And the thing is some of those traits are required for medicine. So again, be who you are because when you're being genuine, the right patients will find you. And then you end up being able to help people, I think, uh, to a greater extent because you're not worrying about what someone thinks or, uh, how you sound. You're worrying about saving their life. Um, Probably my second thing would be learning to sift the personal from professional feedback. So again, sometimes someone will give you information that you didn't do well on whatever it was. We could use the newspaper. My writing for the newspaper is an example. And I try to look at it from the perspective. This isn't about me as a human being. This is about something I've done or something I can do better. So again, sifting through, it isn't that you're a flawed human being who can never fix it. It's something maybe you have to learn and you can go ahead and make changes and do that. Um, And then finally, simply brutal honesty will be your friend. I always tell people (laughs) for good or for bad exactly what I'm thinking if I'm asked. So I don't sugarcoat things. I don't try to beat around the bush. I simply lead with "This this is what I think. This is what I'm seeing. This is why. And, you know, do you have questions? So, probably my three prescriptions for success really are be exactly who you are, learn to sift um, from personal and professional, be brutally honest. And I guess, kind of a part of the brutal honesty is um, be humble and um, still be bold. Uh, but at, at the bare bones, always just be yourself and be honest, because I think that's the best way to start any relationship. So, those are my three prescriptions for success three and a half.
3: <laughs> well, there's a lot of wisdom in there, and we appreciate you sharing that with us. Uh, this is uh, Dr. Niran Alajba from Silverdale, Washington, who has shared her prescriptions for success. It's been a pleasure being with you today, Niran. And before we go, I want to give you an opportunity to tell people where they can find you, how they can contact you and uh, where they can uh, see what you write if they'd like to.
4: All right. Well, thank you again for having me. It's a great opportunity. Um, my personal blog is just my name, Niran which is N-I-R-A-N-A-L-A-G-B-A.com. Uh, I'm at Silverpeds on Twitter and, and then I have a couple of Facebook pages. My blog also is posted at Mommy Doc on Facebook. And then I have my business page, which is Silverdale Pediatrics. Uh, I write a bi-monthly column for the Kidsap Sun newspaper, which is a subsidiary paper of USA Today. And then I actually have a, a book coming out soon. It's coming out in November uh, titled Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare that has been co-written with Rebecca Bernard. Um, And so look for that on bookshelves soon.
3: Well, uh, we will be looking forward to that. Uh, uh, I I, I bet it's going to be a great book. Uh, So once again, let me say thank you very much, uh, Dr. Niran Alajba from Silverdale, California. Uh, It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for being with us today.
4: My pleasure. Thanks again for having me.
3: and that brings us to the close of another episode of prescription for success before we go i want to encourage everyone to become a subscriber to our podcast when you do you can get even more information about our guests by reviewing the show notes on our website at rx dot com. and while you're there please be sure to leave us a comment and if you feel so inclined give us a five-star rating as well. We would really appreciate that. We also hope you'll support the show by becoming a patron. To do that, all you have to do is visit patreon.com forward slash rx 4 Podcast. Thank you so very much for listening today, and don't forget to fill your prescription for success with my next episode.
0: Are you tired of going at it alone? Well, friend, you don't have to anymore. Come sit with me. I want you to know that it's okay if you need to take a break. It's okay if you need to talk about some real crappy things. It's okay. You're not the first to feel like this, and you don't have to stick it out and be miserable. There is a way out, and there is a whole movement of fierce females in your corner. If you want to come sit with me and be in my community, you will not see me in Facebook groups. I freaking hate Facebook with a deep and fiery passion. (laughs) But what you can do is come over to Aaron Wiseman's Badass Collective on Slack. Because guess what? once a badass always a badass and this isn't anything that's paid it's not anything that i'm like throwing huge promos at you it is simply a community where i am trying to get people together in the same space so that we can have these kind of conversations safely and in a protected manner that you feel so loved on it's the whole purpose so click in the show notes get over to the Slack group we do have some community rules But, you know, that's just how it goes. But I would love to see you in there. I am in there almost every single day having real conversations, posting crazy pictures of my kids and gifts, all that good stuff. And I want you in there, too. So come on over. Come sit with me. Before we go, let's give another shout out to our sponsor, CareCloud. Don't let bad billing processes keep you from your hard-earned revenue. CareCloud's free revenue cycle assessment uncovers billing mistakes so you can see how to claim every last dollar. Get your free assessment by visiting drpodcastnetwork.com backslash carecloud. Again, that's drpodcastnetwork.com backslash care cloud don't wait care cloud is ready to help you make your practice thrive i just want to give a big thank you to all our participants in the summer showcase you guys are awesome thank you for coming on dr me first for helping me have time and space in my schedule and i hope you the listeners enjoy hearing from some different voices so go outside enjoy your summer And remember, your life, your calling, your pulse matters.